Well, good morning. You're continuing through our study of First Timothy. Seems like we've been doing this for quite a while, but I know we got off with Easter and some other things. Um, let's pray before we start this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come before you as a needy people, totally dependent on every word that proceeds from your mouth, for we do not live by bread alone. Father, we pray that Jesus would be placed before us this morning and lifted high, that he would draw all people unto himself, that we would see our beautiful Savior, our need for him and the gift of life that we have in him, and that it would cause us to live differently. We thank you, Holy Spirit, and ask for your presence that you would illumine our hearts and our minds this morning to receive this word that it would be planted deep within us, that it would take root, that it would grow and mature us and bear fruit. All of this for the glory of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're continuing in 1 Timothy. Um, This entire study has to do with the gospel. Um, If I had to sum up 1 Timothy as a whole, I would use that passage last week, uh, 1 Timothy 3.15, and I would entitle this book, The Household of God, The Pillar and Buttress of Truth, and then break this whole book down chapter by chapter, chapter 1 being the entrusting of the gospel, chapter 2, order in the church, roles of men and women in the household of God. And then three, we learned of leadership in the household of God. This particular chapter we're looking at is training in godliness. And we'll look at it in two parts. And then we get into chapter five, which I just would call household rules, widows and elders, the practical application. And then concluding chapter six would be godly living for now and the future. Augustine was the Bishop of Hippo. He had a quote, not as famous as some, but still a famous quote. He said, love man, slay her. That's a good quote, if you think about it. I mean, Timothy was charged in chapter 1 by Paul, tell certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. He was charged to do that. But he was to do it with the aim of love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we see the work that is to be done for the church, to be the pillar and buttress of the truth, that we are to be pillars with our feet firmly planted on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to lift up the gospel and put it on display for people to see. We are to speak it and we are to live it. We are to love man. But we are also to slay error. And you can do that. That's what it means to speak the truth and love to others. You love them so much that you have to tell them the truth. And so Augustine's quote here, love man, slay heir, is very pertinent for us this morning. This passage begins on the cusp of what we covered last week. That Paul wrote this book 
so that the Christians, the believers, would know how to behave in the household of God. That their conduct and their confession was paramount. Their conduct was to be godly living. We are to reflect Christ to the world around us. And brothers and sisters, we're to be that pillar and buttress of truth. You can't be those things if you don't know the Word of God. That's why the elders and the leadership of this church is putting forth a vision for us to make and mature disciples. I'm using that quote. That's Peter Shotwell's. Make and mature disciples. And it's a good quote because that's what we need to do. If we're to be a pillar and a buttress of truth, we have to know the truth. We have to live the truth. And we'll see that as we go out. Every age of the church since the beginning of the church has had to deal with error. It's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon says, in Ecclesiastes. And so we need to be aware that error takes place. And it takes place in the church. We know that it takes place in the world. You see the news. You listen to radio programs. Sometimes I'll listen to a sports radio station. And I'm wanting to listen for sports. <laughs> I'm, that's the information that I want to have. Who did what today? or what trades are being made, and so on and so forth. I don't listen to a sports radio station to hear talk about politics, about sexuality, about drug use. It, it's, it's amazing, or drinking, or anything else. But all these social norms creep into society, don't they? What Paul wants us to know right now in this warning right from the get-go in chapter 4 is there's going to be error and it's going to show up in the church. Paul says he knows this by the Spirit. The Spirit expressly says to him that in the later times, the last days, that some will fall away from the faith. And that word that's used for fall away is apostasy. So listen, brothers and sisters. If we are going to be making and maturing disciples, we need to be doing it in the church, within the church, and outside the church. We don't know who is a believer here and who's not. We hear professions of faith all the time. I'll confess to you, my my youngest son is not a believer. He had professed faith in Christ years ago, but has recanted all of that. And so I have to follow what 1 Timothy says, what Paul gave to Timothy. And I pray for him that he would know the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus that I pray that people would get the gospel to him. I know other people in this congregation, you have siblings, you have sons and daughters, you have family members, you have co-workers that are lost. But brothers and sisters, we have them here in the church too. Now we don't judge the heart. But if we are making and maturing disciples, we are going to be speaking gospel language all the time. It doesn't mean that you just simply quote Bible verses and and that. That's not what I mean. But if you look through Scripture and you know the Scripture, you see the practical application of that. 
It's doing good deeds. It's loving others. It's serving others. It's coming alongside others. It's praying for them. It's teaching them the Word of God. Whether it's in your community group, whether it's just having people over to your home. But you have to understand that error is in the church. Jesus said there's wheat and there's tares. And so that's why Pastor Jake and myself, each and every week, make sure that the gospel is proclaimed. Not just for visitors that come in off the street. There could be some here. And so he wants us to know that there should be no surprise that apostasy will take place. He could be recounting Acts chapter 20 where he was making his way back to Jerusalem and during that period of time he wanted to meet with the elders at Ephesus just one more time. But he didn't go into the city. He met them outside the city in a place called Miletus. And he warned them in chapter 20, verse 29. And he says, The day is coming when ravenous wolves will come in. They will disguise themselves in sheep clothing. They will be elders, is basically what he says. So here Paul is telling Timothy, look, you need to tell the church of Ephesus that air is going to come in and you have to slay it. You have to cut it off. But in that process, you love the man or the woman. Now that takes some training, does it not? Usually when we see behavior, how do we react We were driving up here to the church yesterday, Gayla and myself, for the wedding. And we got behind a car that was going very, very, very slow. (laughs) I had in my mind, I knew when I needed to be here at the church. I didn't love whoever was driving that car. (laughs) We're to love. Brothers and sisters, Christ loved us when we were unworthy. He loved us in our sin. His response for us was to give us His life. That's the good news of the Gospel. So the warning goes out. Error is going to be in the church. And Paul wants us to know that that error has a source. It has a cause. And it's twofold in this text. There are two things that promote error in the church. First is the influence of demonic influence, or demonic influences. That's the first thing. Now, we can have two different responses to this. We can overreact and think too much of Satan and too much of the demonic realm and actually live in fear. And thinking that Satan is behind every door. We can have things wrong. But we need to understand that he is crafty. That he doesn't play by rules. There is no Geneva Convention of Warfare, spiritual warfare. All bets are off. He does whatever he wants, when he wants, how he wants. But what he likes to do, as C.S. Lewis talks about in Screwtape's letters, is he likes to deceive and seduce. Deceive and seduce. I just need you to get a little off-center, a little off-bubble. Some of you are carpenters, and you know when you're building something, you want it to be plumb or level, 
right? And so you bring out your level and you put it up there and there's lines in it. And if the bubble's in the center, everything is straight. Everything is even. Everything is plumb. And so we want to make sure that the things that we put together are plumb. But Satan wants us to get just a little off bubble. He likes to deceive. He likes to seduce. He did this in the garden. Did he not? He used Satan. He enters into Satan, a serpent. And the serpent comes to Eve and says, has God said? And then says a little half-truth. little deception. Let me see if I can get you just a little off-center, Eve. And she bites. She goes a little off-center. And then he repeats another thing. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, boy, that fruit looks good. I'm going to take it. I'm going to eat it. And she does. Gives it to her husband. And everything changes. It's that slow, easy deception. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this particular chapter, he talks about this illustration. And I think it's just a wonderful illustration. Imagine yourself in a bright green room. Picture that in your head for just a moment. A bright green room. And there's a door off to the side. And you open that door and you go into the next room and you shut the door. And you're supposed to stay in there for just a moment. Now what you don't know is there's just a little hint, a little hue of blue in that green room. And then he says, imagine that you do this 50 times. You go from one room to the other, one room to the other, 50 different rooms. You get to the last room and then another person enters in. They have a swatch of the color of the original room. And they show it to you. And you go, wow, that is bright green. And all of a sudden it dawns on you, you're not in a green room anymore, you're in a blue room. All Satan has to do is get you a little off bubble, a little off center. And if you're a little off, then you miss the mark. That's what sin is. Have you ever done archery or fired a gun? You line up the sights for the target, for the bullseye. Those sights are there to show you exactly what the trajectory is supposed to be. And if you turn just a little bit, just just an inkling, you can miss the mark completely. Paul wants us to understand that the deception and the seducing of Satan, the demonic realm, is just to get you just a little off. If I get you a little off, then you'll get somebody else a little off. And another a little off. So all of a sudden, discipleship making to mature and make disciples isn't that at all. And that's the problem here at the churches at Ephesus. False teaching had come in and it had gotten the church at Ephesus a little off bubble. They were treating the law in a different manner and using it for righteousness. They were telling myths and genealogies. And in this passage, it talks about silly myths and an irreverent talk. And all of a sudden, that spreads like a cancer throughout the church. We cannot allow that to happen. We need to love one another and we need to slay 
error. We need to be able to recognize error. In order to recognize error, we have to know the truth. Be the pillar of and buttress of truth. And so the first cause of error is demonic. The second is that of a human influence. Those that are insincerity of liars and their consciences are seared. They've devoted themselves to these deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Just as Christ uses us as brothers and sisters as a means of delivering the gospel, so too does the demonic realm use mankind to propagate lies. And they'll do that. And they'll speak sincerely, but they'll be sincerely wrong. There's all kinds of things in this world where people speak falsehoods and they do it even representing themselves as being a part of the church. Think of Mormons and caffeine. No caffeine. Think of the dietary rules of Seventh-day Adventists. There's a lot of cults and people that call themselves Christians, but they don't follow things. They're doing the do's and don'ts. But these humans take that upon themselves. And they deliberately lie. That word for insincerity in this text, it means hypocrite. Hypocrite. John Stott says this, hypocrisy is a deliberate pretense and a lie, a deliberate falsehood. So then false teachers, although seduced by deceiving spirits, are themselves intentional deceivers. Misleading their masks of learning and religion. They don't even believe themselves, Stott says. They become like the serpent in the garden. These are the false teachers that we have to recognize. And we have to recognize that they have been, their consciences are not a good conscience any longer. It's a seared conscience. That's where we get the word carterize. Their, their minds have been carterized. And so they go th- forth spouting things that they don't even believe just to get people off. Well, what was the false teaching? Well, in this chapter, Paul says these false teachers brought out two different things. They forbid marriage and abstain from food. Now, some will... It should cause you to think, well, why marriage and why food? Why would we even be talking about those two particular things? It is an, it's an attack on the doctrine of creation. There will always be a subtleness to error. Forbidding of marriage. Marriage was instituted in Genesis chapter 2. God made man male and female. He gave them a mandate to be fruitful and multiply. He married Adam and Eve in chapter 2. He formed Eve out of the man to be a helpmate. And now these false teachers are saying, no, 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 no. Don't get married. There's there's more virtue 
in abstaining and being celibate. You see, one of the things that was going around at this time, and you'll, we'll get into it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I mean 2 Timothy, um, it talks about how some people actually thought the resurrection had already occurred. And so they knew in the resurrection there's no marrying or giving in marriage. So they think they have a leg up on other people of not getting married. So let's promote that idea. It's taking one little piece of scripture and making that your whole foundation for the way you live. And that's not the way we're to live. God gives us everything, everything in scripture for life and godliness. This is a form of asceticism. So forbid marriage. Don't do that. But the world will take this further. They attack creation each and every day. God made man, male and female. The world attacks and says, no, doesn't matter how God made them, they can be whatever they want to be. And so gender is now a hot button, is it not? Love the man, slay the heir. We need to know how to speak the truth and love in these hotbed topics. Because it's only by the gospel of Jesus Christ that those who have cauterized minds, consciences, can be set free from the bondage of sin. And God can do it. He did it for me. He did it for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He did it for Paul who called himself the foremost of sinners. So marriage is out. Food. There's a problem with food sacrificed to idols. Didn't want to eat that kind of food. But there was also a thought that if we can just return back to the garden and everybody eat fruits and vegetables, everything will be fine. But what does Jesus say in the whole counsel of God? He tells Peter, through a vision, three times the sheet comes down, clean and unclean things, Peter, kill and eat. Everything that God gives is good. Everything that God has created is good. But the world wants to say no. And it will infiltrate the church and it will speak of these things and we have to love the person and slay the heir. So we see these two things that are talked about in Scripture. Abstinence from food and marriage. But Paul reels it back and he says, let me give you a good perspective of creation. Everything that God has created needs to be received with thanksgiving. Do you do that, believer? On a regular basis? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declares your glory. Everything created says, praise God. I have a plant out on my back porch. Two, actually. A couple of hydrangeas from a year ago Easter that I took. And they didn't do well at first. They got down to just being nothing but sticks. All the leaves had fallen off. There was nothing left. And last fall, I began to till and put them in a plant, put some food in it, kept watering it regularly, babying it. And now, 
it's like yay big and it's born fruit. And why am I telling you that? Because God created it good. He, he has given us a dominion mandate to take care of things, to be good stewards. Stewards of the gospel and stewards of the resources of this earth. And we should do that on a regular basis. People should say, hey, that, that man, that woman, they care about things. Yeah, we do. We should. We don't take it to an extreme one way or the other. But we should praise God for the things of creation all the time and give Him credit for it in the presence of other people. That's one way we can love the person and slay the error. Be thankful for all these different things. Paul goes on to say that those who believe the truth, we know that these things are good, that God has created. And we're not to reject anything. We're to receive it with thanksgiving for it was made holy by the Word and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. The Word of God being the objective piece of things and our response subjective back to Him showing thanksgiving. Paul says we need to understand that all things are to be received with thanksgiving. G.K. Chesterton said this, you say grace before meals. Many of us do. He says, all all right, but I say grace before the play of the opera. I say grace before the concert and the theater. And grace before I open a book and grace before sketching and painting and swimming and fencing and boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. In everything, give thanks. Thanks. If we demonstrate that in the presence of other people, don't you believe they will say there's something different about that person? Something different. What is it? They may even ask. And then you can testify. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's where Paul's going with this. When you have air that comes into the church, you want to love the the man and slay the air. You need to know the Word of God to do that. You need to train in godliness. And that's where he's going now. I've called this message, Godliness in the Last Days. We, We shouldn't hunker down and be, oh, everything's falling apart. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. No, that's when the godly needs us to stand up and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. In everything that we do, So Paul tells Timothy, he says, listen, if you put these things, these teachings, everything that I've said so far, the doctrine of creation here, and everything else that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ, from Genesis to Revelation, if you put these before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, trained in the words of the faith. That word for train there actually means nourishment. How do you do if you haven't eaten for a while? Pastor Jake went through weeks without being able to eat. He was weakened. We prayed for him continuously that God would heal his stomach, that he would be able to partake of food. And even when he could get started again, it was just a little morsel. It's hard to sustain yourself if you can't eat. 
Paul's telling Timothy, be nourished in the Word of God. Be nourished in it. Follow the good doctrine. That means obey it. When you eat, you're strengthened. That's what we need to do. We need to be nourished. Have you ever heard the rule of 10,000? The rule of 10,000? They'll talk about this if you're an athlete or you're in some kind of profession. Maybe Alex had it as a piano player. It takes 10,000 hours to master something. As I was reading this, this week, it says... If you, you can train for 10,000 hours so that you can be able to run the 100 meters in under 10 seconds. And I go, nope. <laughs> I do have a relative from years ago, Bobby Morrow. He ran in the 1956 Olympics. And he got three gold medals. He won the 100 meters, he won the 200 meters, and got a medal for the 4 by 100 relay. Did I get any of that? Nope. Or you can study a language. 10,000 hours, you master a language. I don't know how many hours Vlad has studied Japanese, but you can master something by spending 10,000 hours. How many hours do you spend with the Word of God? You thought about it? Have you ever looked at your life and looked at your week and say, okay, I sleep eight hours. I work eight hours. It's 16. I watch TV for two or three hours. I do this. And all of a sudden, time is squeezed out. And there's very little left to spend time with God, and in particular, reading of His Word. How much time do you spend? There was a man, Lieutenant General William K. Harrison, during World War II. He was a decorated soldier of the 30th Infantry. He was General Eisenhower's right-hand man. He was the first to lead his battalion into Belgium during the war. He received various medals except the Congressional Medal of Honor, but he did receive a Distinguished Service Cross, Silver Star, Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart, one of the only generals wounded during World War II. He was a soldier soldier, but he was an amazing man of the Word of God. Listen to this. When he was 20 at West Point, he began reading the Old Testament once per year and the New Testament four times per year. A one to four ratio. Old Testament and New Testament. Even in the thick of war, he maintained his commitment by catching up two or three days when they would have respites from battles. When he reached the age of 90, William Harrison had read through the Old Testament 70 times, the New Testament 280 times. People who knew him said, It's no wonder 
he, had, he portrayed the godliness that he did and the wisdom that he had. And it was no surprise that in his later days that he was so incredibly fruitful with officers' Christian fellowship. Are you prepared to give time to the Word of God? To be nourished by it? To study it? To treat it as Paul says to Timothy in here, like a gymnasium, an exercise. Not only are you nourishing yourself with the Word of God, but you're working it out in your lives. Paul says to the Philippian church that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work with you, both to will and to work. We're to nourish ourselves on the Word of God and we're to wrestle with it. We're to work it out in our lives. We are to live it out. That takes time. It takes commitment. Paul will go on to say to Timothy, listen, this has promise in this life, in the life to come. In this life, he'll say in chapter 6 that that promise is contentment. In a world where we are so rushed, we are so bombarded by everything that's around us, by, by suffering and affliction and everything else, and yet it says if you spend your time in the Word of God and you become a good servant of Jesus Christ, you'll be content. You'll have godliness and wisdom that'll put you above and beyond others so you can address anything that comes along the way. He says that training for this life has some value, little bit of value. And the reason he, Paul says that is because when we die, all of this stuff in this life is dead. It's put in the grave as well. Your accomplishments here, your promotions at work, your house, your things, all that's gone. The only things that matter, the only things that last are the eternal things. And so in the now, we can have contentment. And in the time to come, we are preparing for godliness, for eternal bliss with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me wrap up with this. In verse 10, Paul talks about this is what we toil for. This is what we strive for. That word strive is agonize. Because we have our hopes set on the living God. It is a worthy goal, a worthy prize that we're out for. To be fully redeemed and consummated by the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes again. We're living in the last days from His resurrection to His coming again. And we toil and strive for these things. And our toil and striving should be like this. John Stephen Akwari was born in Tanzania. He competed in the Olympic Games in 1968 in Mexico City. You may know this story. He represented his country. A little past the 11-mile mark, they were jockeying for position and he got hit, hit hard. Went down, dislocated his knee, injured his shoulder. But he got up and he continued to run. Not at the pace that he wanted to. The race was won by an Ethiopian in two hours and 20 minutes. People began to leave the stadium there in Mexico City. 
And there was a few handful of people left. But the news media got word that there's somebody that's still running the race. They found out who it was. And Anwari entered the stadium in Mexico City and finished the race in three hours and 25 minutes. Over an hour after everything had ended, he was asked a question about what he was thinking. He said, my country sent me not to enter the race, but to finish the race. To finish the race. For that, I toiled and strived. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to toil and strive? Loving the man, slaying the heir, that people can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a lifetime commitment. I'm praying that for myself. I'm praying that for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your word, for what it means to us. I do pray that we would receive it well, that we would live it out, and that we would toil and strive for your kingdom, that we would speak the truth in love, that we would slay error, and that we would grow up being nourished and strengthened in training in the word of God, that we might be lights in a darkened world that needs the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.